0: Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. Dedicated to the evolution of you, because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be. Helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. We're so conditioned with non-apologies like this that uh, where's the leadership for remorse supposed to come from? And then other questions like, what does it look like for a leader to apologize? Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. In this episode, we start a three-part series on how to apologize, Specifically, this part discusses the anatomy of non-apologies and how to spot them immediately. You know, we don't learn about the art of apologizing as children or in school. In fact, the process still eludes most grown adults. Maybe even your employees, business associates, maybe even your significant other falls into this category. Here, we discuss specific examples of non-apologies in the media and across the political spectrum. This episode is a recent weekly member webcast. For more information about the many benefits of Clear and Open membership and how to get the help you need in conversations like this, please go to clearandopen.com. Thanks so much for listening. Now let's dive in.
1: I'll just share that I had uh, felt more challenged this week than the past couple of weeks. I, I believe the assignment was to look at some of the problems that we're working on as part of the class, and um, see if there was a a place to feel remorse, which is what we talked about last week. I I did eventually do that, uh, but but I found it a a bit of a challenge to face up to – well, part of it was the fact that that it required me to go back and do some unfinished homework from previous weeks. Uh, I also felt the need to – when I finally settled on something that I could see the uh, negative impact I had had on one of my employees and identified that, then the next thing, a logical thing was to, to talk about that and acknowledge that with that employee. And I haven't done that yet. I made a, a small reference to it after, uh, yesterday, but I, I see that there's more that I need to and want to do about that. And that's, it's it's a bit of a challenge, but um so uh, that's that's just what came up for me.
0: I appreciate you sharing all that. I'm I'm sure you're not the only one who's experiencing difficulty. Is the difficulty unproductive or is it desirable difficulty? Uh, desirable difficulty is a technical term in modern education theory that says it's actually helping you learn. I don't mean. Do, do you, would you like some more? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I would I would have to classify it as productive. Comfort. Yeah, yeah. Good. I actually did address that today in a in an oblique way because I I I talked to um, my production manager about goals that I had personally to improve the way in which I prepare information for him when I when I sell a job. Mm-hmm. It I, I I'm, I'm I'm just kind of wondering now back to a couple of hours ago whether I actually expressed remorse or whether I sidestepped it. By just saying what I wanted to do differently because I realized that it had, uh, it was difficult for him to do his job properly if I didn't do that.
0: As usual, Peter, you set me up perfectly for segues. By the end of today, you're going to know exactly how well you expressed that remorse. Okay, let the games begin. None at all, or uh, none at all, all, uh, all of it, or in part. But certainly, it was at least in part. Because right. that's what we're going to talk about today, is sort of the, um, The Architecture of Remorse, How to Apologize, which I think is the coolest use of the CLEAR acronym that I've come up with so far. You know, maybe I'll come up with, if I come up with too many uses of the CLEAR acronym, it'll just obfuscate the whole thing and be ridiculous. But so far, I think it's not yet overused. Okay, I want to start by reading uh, pieces of an article from NPR in... Uh, May of 2013. I'll just read some pieces of it here. Um, It's going to reference something that happened right around there. It doesn't go into a lot of depth about it. and I'll I'll add some commentary as needed. Make no mistake, the acting commissioner of the IRS put himself in historic company Tuesday by writing in USA, USA Today that, quote, mistakes were made when his agency singled out for extra scrutiny some conservative groups. This was big news at the time. Of course, Luann, the CPA, remembers. This is the equivalent of racial profiling by the IRS. It was pretty pretty big news at the time. No less an authority on language than the late William Sapphire in his Sapphire's Political Dictionary devoted an entry to the oft-used phrase. This is the phrase, mistakes were made, describing it as a, quote, passive evasive way of acknowledging error while distancing the speaker from responsibility for it. Beautifully defined. Political analyst Bill Schneider declared it to be the, quote, past exonerative. I love that. The past exonerative of choice for the political class. Seeing it used again sets us off on a search of the phrase's origin and history. As On the Media is reported, quote, the magical construction, I love the, the jokes they make about this, the magical construction, that's the past exonerative, was popularized during Watergate by Nixon spokesman Ron Ziegler in 1973. He apologized to The Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, some of the original investigative reporters who you know blew that whole case open. He apologized, for example, saying that, quote, mistakes were made in terms of comments, unquote, that the White House had made about the Post and the reporters. Sound like remorse? (laughs) Uh, It famously came up again in December 1986. President Reagan conceded that, quote, mistakes were made, end quote, by his administration when it sold arms to Iran and shipped the proceeds to Contras in Nicaragua. Reagan used the phrase again a month later in his 1987 State of the Union. President Clinton, a Democrat, proved in 1998 that Republicans aren't the only ones who know a good non-apology apology apology when they hear one. Asked about a fundraising scandal, he responded that, quote, mistakes were made here by people who did it either deliberately or inadvertently. (laughs) I love that. That pretty much covers the whole spectrum. Like, either did it on purpose or not. Either way, mistakes were made, certainly. Yeah. Republicans picked up the ball again during George W's administration, as Sapphire wrote. Bush added a, quote, skillful refinement, the subordinate clause admission or error, compounding passivity and present perfection with a conditional whatever, end quote. Isn't that gorgeous? (laughs) You don't don't hear language like this much very often. Speaking of the Iraq war, Bush said in 2006 that quote, whatever mistakes have been made in Iraq, the worst mistake would be to think that if we pulled out, the terrorists would leave us alone. Now, this apology, I want to do a sidebar for a second and say it one more time because it deserves a little bit more attention. This is a This takes non-apology to a new extreme. Let me read it again. Quote, whatever mistakes have been made in Iraq, the worst mistake would be to think that if we pulled out, the terrorists would leave us alone. So that's not only not a specific admission of, of a mistake, but it's saying, actually, we don't think overall that it was a mistake. right? It's saying we needed to do this, and there were some smaller mistakes in, inside the way we did it. But what's fascinating to me about that non-admission of a mistake is it, it's great marketing, you know, because if, if someone wants to hear an admission of guilt badly enough, they'll hear it in that, you know, but it's not. And, and that's why it's such brilliant marketing. I mean, somebody must have spent an hour crafting that sentence. They're like, "Well, a lot of people are really upset about this whole Iraq war and you didn't find any uh, weapons of mass destruction and you know, people died and lots of money wasted. You're going to have to admit some mistakes here, Mr. President." Okay, well, how are we going to do that without actually admitting a mistake? <laughs> I, mean, I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that conversation. How do we satisfy the people who are upset and think this was a mistake and also satisfy the people who don't think it was a mistake? How do we Get both realities to, which don't go together in this case. How do we get that to go together? And justify screwing up. Yes, admit guilt, justify screwing up without really losing face with, without actually changing the opinion, without having to change our foreign policy, you know it's, so we can invade another country you know in a couple of years. and, and that's what they came up with. Let me read it one more time whatever whatever mistakes have been made so like whatever they are now that's fascinating right because it's in one way all inclusive whatever mistakes whatever all of them all whatever mistakes that happen without naming a single one right it's genius only a shadow can come up with clever clever stuff like this i mean it's ingenious whatever mistakes have been made in iraq the worst mistake would be to think that don't this is this would be worse than any of those all of those which I won't specifically mention but the worst mistake would be to think that if we pulled out the terrorists would leave us alone so it leaves you thinking well sure mistakes happen not going to talk about them but it would have been it's better than this other mistake wow social engineering it sounds really logical too you know yeah <laughs> You're right, Tyler. It does. It's like, oh well, yeah, that makes sense because we had to do that and make those mistakes. Hey, nothing's perfect because this other thing might have happened otherwise. You know, you can make a case for that. You know, and of course, he did, and many people did. But so it's going it under logical fallacy. Like, yes, great effect? call, great call, Victor. Um, what logical fallacy would it be? it's a slippery there's implicit in there is a slippery slope thing right if we pulled out the terrorists wouldn't leave us alone um there's there's a speculation there i have a a, a nose for logical fallacies a lot better than i do actually knowing the specific terms for it but the assumptions implicit there are we know what would have happened if we pulled out um this is what we had to do uh and it also, um, in very implicit in that, is a definition of what the root problem, an, an assertion of what the root problem was. Um, it's, also, it's also a redirect, though, too. Yes. It's a direction away from, like, you're not actually, it's not actually acknowledging any of the problems. It's saying, look at this potential one that could have happened if we wouldn't have done this, too. So, from to Tyler's point, it sounds logical uh, on the surface, but then when you actually think about it, it doesn't sound logical. Yeah, at all. For sure. And, you know, what's, I think, most sort of disgraceful or, or dishonorable about this is it, it's, it lacks spine. Like, look, if you think you should have invaded Iraq, then stand behind that, you know, all the way. And don't make excuses. And if you think it was a mistake, then admit it was a mistake. But this is a muddy middle, you know. I would rather have a president justify it up and down and said, this is exactly what we needed to do, you know, which was like how Vietnam was talked about. We must stop communism. We can't give an inch, you know, like that. There was no spine like that with Iraq. Not, not nearly as much. It actually, this is off topic. Well, not really. It actually reminds me of The Office when Michael runs over <laughs> Meredith, but then thinks it's a good thing because they found out that she had rabies and then he has a fundraiser for her rabies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, I think history will show as things unfold. It's like that level of absurdity. We're getting closer and closer to it, right? All you got to do is watch uh, that movie, uh, *Idiocracy*. But you're right that that's just a little crazier. What Michael Scott did. It's just it's it's getting more and more um, feasible that things like that could happen. That that was certainly one of the finest uh, office moments. Yeah. Okay, uh, so let's let's push on here. Um, this is almost uh, the the end. Where oh, uh, and then a year later, Bush's attorney general said uh, mistakes were made in the firing of U.S. attorneys. Uh, they asked the question, "Where did this all begin?" All the way back to Ulysses S. Grant, who said in appended a note to his final final annual report to Congress in 1876, acknowledging the scandal that had plagued his two terms in office with the words, quote, mistakes have been made as all can see. And I admit that's another really interesting. Word. Like everybody, look, everybody sees the mistakes that have been made parentheses. We're not going to name them, talk about them, but I admit the mistakes were made, right? Sounds really honorable. So um yeah and then the article closes i have to say if you know of earlier references please tell us and if there were any errors in this post dot 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 well you know what we'll say <laughs> really cute poignant and and painful article well you can laugh cry or get angry right so i, br- I bring this today because these are in, quote un you know supposed admissions quote unquote apologies from the leaders of our country and we're so conditioned with non-apologies like this that uh, where's the leadership for remorse supposed to come from and then other questions like what does it look like for a leader to apologize because every in every single one of these circumstances i guarantee you what's going through the heads of the people coming up with the phraseology is they're saying, well, we have to appear strong for the American people, or you know, we can't let people doubt the institution of the IRS or, or whatever. We can't you know, collapse and let people down in some way. And there's, of course, truth to that. You know, when you're in an authority position and you're admitting guilt, um, it's different, the, the sort of rules and guidelines are different than if you're in a peer relationship. That's a domain specificity thing. Uh, I would agree that there's a difference there and it's, it's tricky. Unfortunately, that difference people grab and run with and they use it as a justification because they tell themselves, well, I need to appear strong. You know, We need to look like we've got a spine here Need to appear as if, (laughs) you know I mean? That's sort of the clue. We need to appear strong. Well, are you actually strong? Uh, Don't know. But I know, I definitely know I have to appear it, right? Because the fear is, is of course, that if any president truly admitted a mistake, and I I can't think of any president that has ever expressed remorse uh, in a way that would really satisfy me or uh, any um, business leader, you know, in the public sphere, I can't think of one. There may be some, but you don't hear about it very often. What usually happens? Like, uh, remember the the BP oil spill in, in the Gulf? The CEO quote took responsibility how by resigning, and then we're supposed to think like, oh, justice has been served, like as if he was the one operating the drill or he was the project manager of that project, Kadoa. I don't get how how was him resigning supposed to make everybody feel better? And so you can't talk about remorse without talking about the very subtle topic of justice. What is justice? What makes us feel? Because justice is very much a feeling. What makes us feel that justice has been served? One thing I would invite you to consider is that real justice is so rarely meted out in our world that we've sort of lost our compass for what it should feel like what we're authentically and reasonably desiring to happen and and then what actually happens we're just kind of lost with it i mean we still live in a world where all you got to do is dial up you know your bank or your insurance company And five minutes later, you can hear the phrase, I'm sorry if there was any inconvenience. I mean, this is one of the most basic, obvious things I can think of. If the apology has the word if in it, it's not an apology. I mean, I I don't understand that at all. If I've been telling you about my inconvenience for the last 10 minutes, that's, that's the best you can... This happened, this happened, you caused this, you dropped this ball, and now you say you're apologizing if there was an inconvenience? Have you been listening? That's a a non-apology that is written into so many scripts for so many tens of thousands of bank, insurance company, and other similar kinds of businesses. It's absurd. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Be sure to visit clearandopen.com for the latest tools, articles, and free resources to help you on your journey. Thanks for listening and bye for now.